Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Future of AppSec. We have a very special guest with us today, Travis McPeak. Travis was the head of product security at Databricks and previously led security teams at Netflix, IBM, Symantec, among many other companies. He's been incredibly active in the AppSec community through his leadership in OVASP and various other security communities. And most recently, he started a very exciting project for himself. Travis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, amazing to be here. Thanks for the invite. Travis, so you've done a lot of interesting things over the past few years. Tell me and our audience a little bit more about what's next, what's exciting that's going on in your life. Yeah, so today is my second day on uh, an exciting new journey for me. And, you know, really... Most recently, I was at Databricks. That's an incredible company, you know, good opportunity. It was very hard for me to leave, but I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity now to build something with my bare hands. So, you know, like build my own thing. Uh, If it's good, it'll be my doing. If it's bad, it'll be my doing too. So it feels very motivating for me. Um, You know, what I'm doing is really, without being too specific, I'm trying to make developers' lives easier. I think, you know, especially in a DevOps world, developers have so much on their plate. They have to be kind of, you know, mini experts in everything, right? They have to deploy, develop, test, operate, do things in the cloud. And so my goal is to make their lives as simple as possible in an area that I have expertise in, which is cloud and cloud security. So really making systems that make developers' lives easier when they use the cloud. That is so exciting, man. Like, first of all, I just love this journey of security practitioners becoming founders of security companies and solving the pain points that we all saw. It's, it's just an amazing story. But also, the other thing that I also love is making security easy for the developers, right? Like, that's, I think, the key part of how to actually build scalable security. And you've done that at several companies before this. So it sounds like you're in a perfect position to go and solve this problem. I will say that your journey has been a huge motivation for me as well. Just seeing you like start a company and all of the excitement behind what you're doing uh, motivated me to you know take the uncomfortable route and start my own thing as well. Um, oh, yeah, you're you're too humble. Fantastic. So I would love to dive a little bit deeper into like why all of a sudden you know we are seeing more interest in making security easier for developers. And I guess it's not a very recent phenomenon, right? And and folks that I mean, when you were at Netflix. You guys gave a lot of talks and presentations about why that is so important, the paved road concept and all that stuff. So if you can help us understand, like, why is that important in this day and age? I think, you know, we've seen security been shifting uh, kind of a strategy over the last, you know, at least decade, Uh, certainly accelerated in the last few years. You know, back in the good old days, right, everyone had their specific roles. Developers wrote code and then somebody else tested the code and security would do a security sign off. And then now uh, with quicker release velocities, we can't do that. You know, the waterfall model doesn't work anymore. And so it used to be like, who's security's job? Security is security's job. And today, who's security's job? Everybody. Everybody's got to be responsible for security. But, you know, there's, it takes a long time to learn about security. There's a lot of kind of nuances and gotchas. And so really, you know, from my perspective, where you can add value as a security person is making tools and processes that empower 
every person to do security effectively without having to build that deep expertise. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at this, right? I mean, I don't think anybody would deny that security is everyone's responsibility. I think the key difference is earlier, we all used to just talk about this, right? And expect everybody in the company to just follow. But now we have an opportunity to actually build tools and systems that enable them to do something about security. And by them, I mean developers, right? Or any other team within an organization. So this has changed recently. And this has also led to like, if you're following this mentality, I guess the type of people you would hire in your team would also be different because now you're not hiring people who are just AppSec consultants or performing testing all day long, right? Now you're hiring people who can build tools, who can build those, you know, paved roads and so on and so forth. Is that easy to hire for that type of a skill set? That's right. Yeah. So the hires that I'm most excited about are versatile. They have, you know, security background and then they can also build systems. And I've found you can definitely find them because, you know, as opposed to a security person that comes from a security background and just builds that skill set over time, sometimes the people like we're talking about here actually come from a developer background and they get exposed to security and then they want to keep going with those problems. So, you know, for example, at Databricks, one of the more recent hires I did, you know, it was a few years in his career. And he was amazing in the sense that he had software engineering skills and was able to ramp up well on our problems. So when you do this, you know, from my perspective, you actually expand the talent pool, which is really important because as you all know, like we don't have enough security folks in the industry to just, you know, be stealing the talent from each other all the time. Right, right. Yeah, that is true. And, you know, since moving into this role in my uh, new company, I've also realized that We all talk about how difficult hiring for security engineers is. It's actually equally difficult to also hire for good software developers, right? Like it's not that easy, but I guess at least the talent pool is much bigger, right? There's huge volume of good software developers. Convincing a few of them to learn security makes them into a really good security engineers because now they come with a software background and they also understand security to an extent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think, you know, the number of people that need to understand the ins and outs of cross-site scripting exploitation, if you're building systems that prevent against that problem, you only need one person with the skill set on the team and the rest of the folks, you know, understand the problem well enough to to build a system around it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So how do people think about stopping this, right? So you bring up a good point in terms of like you need some level of uh, deep security expertise and some combination of systems building and systems design thinkings as well, people who can code and build systems. So when you were building your team at Databricks when you joined, like how did you think about like what type of people you hired first or what type of people you already had versus, you know, what was the gap in skills that you introduced? Yeah, my favorite profile, and you know, this is uh, in part just, you know, my bias from like what I saw successful at Netflix, but I really like, you know, if you have a spectrum, right, where you have like strict software engineer on the left and a strict security engineer on the right, I like right in the middle. I like, you know, good software, good security because they're so versatile. You know, if you happen to have a time where you need like operational support for a team, you know, they're designing something, you have to get the security right. The person is equally good there as they are for like, you know, quiet times when you can build automation and prepare for the future. I just think, you know, a person like that is, it's like a, you know, a hammer. You can do a million things with it. Right. Now, there's also this relatively recent phenomenon of teams hiring builder type people within the software security teams or product security teams, and then calling that like a security engineering function, right? So you're building systems 
for the security function within the organization. There's also some companies who use product security as another team name. So now we end up with either AppSec or ProductSec or security engineering. How do you distinguish between those different functions and what does that actually mean in reality? Yeah, I have a you know something funny that I've given. It's ironic given my previous title, but I actually don't one hundred percent know what product security is. <laughs> uh, it like means different things in different organizations, but you know, I guess like contextually, you're going to have security people whose job it is to shore up the security of your product, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is different than security functions like corporate security, where they're shore up your workforce and your G suite and things like that. Yeah. It's really like the software that you're building that you sell to customers making that secure. Uh, that's kind of where the line for product security is for me. Right. And what about security engineering? Do you see that as a different function? Like if you had enough resources to spin up a new team, would you consider spinning up a new team, a separate team as a security engineering team versus an abstract team? Or I would call the security engineering team like the people that are building software for the purpose of security, whether that's you know product security or internal security, you know the the engineers that build security, and then AppSec is you know yet another thing. <laughs> we have like a confusing Venn diagram situation here, but uh, right. application security is you know a part of product security where they focus on a specific level of the stack. So in Netflix, they call it platform security, but you know the folks that are responsible for the, like the low level infrastructure that people deploy apps on top of, mm-hmm. and then at Netflix they also add cloud security, which is responsible for working with like AWS. Or GCP or whoever your cloud provider is, and shoring up resources. And then the application security is the level on top of that, where they are responsible for making sure that the applications that are being written by developers are secure. Right, right. Now, when I talk to a lot of other AppSec teams, the one common thing that comes out is like nobody disagrees with the fact that they have to automate their own things. They have to build their own systems, just because every organization looks slightly different, right? But in most cases, they actually don't have enough budget resources or access to the skill set that they can do the things and build the things that you guys used to do at Databricks or Netflix, uh, for example. So when you have a smaller team who's sort of limited in terms of how many people they can hire, how many developers they can hire within the security organizations, how do you suggest they should think about automation, customizations, and building your own stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, different organizations are going to have different security budget, like how much they're willing to spend in response to risk. And that, you know, that budget will go into the security folks that you hire. Now, let's say you're you're budgeted for five people, right? And you that's going to cover all of security. So you know that you need a corporate security function, you need to have laptops patched and things like that. You need to have folks on application security and cloud security. Now, if you had the five and then you split it up now, maybe like one in a few different functions. Your AppSec person, you know, one of one has a lot of surface area to cover. And so for them to build software that like solves a specific problem is going to be very expensive. They may spend a year or multiple years building that thing and then they need to maintain it. So this is really where great vendor products come in. A lot of the security challenges that an organization faces are not specific to the organization. Every other organization that in the same market with them has the same problems. And so a lot of times, like, you know, the way I think of it is like a vendor solution will cover 80% of your problem and then 20% is specific to the company. And so if 80% is good enough for you and your staff, like with one person, then a vendor like makes clear sense. You're not going to be able to write the automation. Uh, this is like a situation that I've talked through with a lot of founders when I help them as a like a security consultant or advisor is like, hey, you've got two people. We really shouldn't be building bespoke solutions here. Like, you know, look for vendors in these spaces. Right. 
Yeah. And uh, I guess that was that one of the inspirations for you to start a company because, you know, most other people are facing the exact same problems that you solve for, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like what you're doing, like my thesis as an investor or, you know, now as a founder is take the things that keep getting built again and again at different companies that are commodity, right? It's the same problem, but everybody builds it because there's no vendor in the space and make a vendor product that solves the the 80% use case. And, you know, what you get there is like, you know, like, let's say at Netflix or Databricks, we do have enough talent to build something, but we prefer not to. We would like to pull that engineer back and have them work on problems that are specific to the organization. So even if we built something internally, if a vendor product does most of the same thing, I would prefer to pay for it all day, every day. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the challenges as a practitioner. What I saw was when you walk the halls of, you know, RSA or Black Hat or whatever, which I haven't done in a few years, but a lot of people building security products over the past several years don't really understand the practical problems that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, right? And, you know, a lot of products just throw in buzzwords all day long and try to sell it brute force. But when we see practitioners who have felt this problem, who have solved these problems before, take that and try to commoditize those problems, I feel like it creates much more relevant solutions that a lot of people can start adopting very quickly. Yeah, totally. You know, I've uh, been in a position where I've seen a lot of pitches for companies and startups building things lately. And one of the things that comes up a lot is like, here, we've built this thing. What is it? It's a dashboard of problems. Like, ah, I don't want any more dashboards of problems. Right. I have so many problems. Like if we can't actually solve the issues, like I don't want to know about new problems that I don't have the solution for. Hey, it can be solved with AI, ML, and blockchain, right? Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I'll take five of those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So now, you know, we talked a little bit about secure by default. I mean, we didn't actually talk about secure by default, but we brought up uh, paved road, which is kind of secure by default and that kind of um, operating methodology of how you make security as the easiest path for the developers, right? So if you, let's say you hired a couple of people who are building those solutions in-house for you, making your development lifecycle secure by default and, you know, making security the easy path for developers. So it's almost transparent. Have you really seen that take effect or you know, does that actually move the needle with developers or is it still a pie in the sky kind of a story still? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like one of the big success cases that I saw in Netflix was Spinnaker. So Spinnaker is a deployment system that is open source. And I believe Netflix originally created it, but a bunch of different companies use it now. Actually, funnily enough, every company that I've either worked at or interviewed at in the last three years or four years uses Spinnaker. So I think it's more prevalent than I actually knew it was. But yeah, what it is, so if you're a developer and you need to deploy an application, there's a lot of things that you would need to go learn about, right? So like, how do I do failovers? How do I do traffic load balancing? How do I do um, red-black deployments? Things like this are just, you know, you need to be a deployment expert to know about these things. And Spinnaker makes that easy for you. So you basically click a button and you say, I want a new application. And Spinnaker has a bunch of reasonable defaults about these best practices that you get for free. And so I think this is like, to extend that approach for security is what I'm most excited about, where you know a developer doesn't have to think about how is my S3 bucket protected or you know what kind of permissions should I have on this queue. You know, a system like that, like Spinnaker, could just pick same defaults for you and then you don't have to worry about it. You know, there's a I think it's an economics thing. It's like something the tragedy of the defaults or the the tyranny of defaults or something, but it's basically like if you have a default option, like do you want insurance? And it's default yes or default no. 
the difference between who actually like ends up with insurance is like, it's like 80% to 20%. I don't know the exact numbers, but defaults are so powerful right. that if you think carefully as a security person about how you can make the secure system just automatic for a developer, like that's such a powerful concept. That's actually a, a really good way to drive adoption, right? It's just, if it's transparent, you know, they don't have to do anything to get security. They're just inheriting it. But I guess somebody would have to think about it. Somebody would have to build it out. Somebody would have to make it relevant and contextual to the business. What have you seen in terms of who does that? Is it, you know, the security engineering team or security team? Or is it more of the platform, DevOps, developer experience, whatever team you want to call it, somebody who controls that? You know, the deployment pipelines and Spinnaker, for example, is it them who's building those controls? It could be both. So I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, one is like Spinnaker itself, because so many developers use it at Netflix. Now the security team would target Spinnaker as a point we layered our security controls on. So we as a security team actually went over to Spinnaker and implemented features that would be on by default because there was, you know, it's like a watering hole. That's where all the developers are. Another case is uh, we had a, a tool that was an internal tool called Newt. It was like the Netflix new project creation tool. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool because it's got templates. So you just say, you know, I'm a developer. I want a Python microservice running Flask. And then Newt will create all of the stuff, you know, a CI deployment job and a build and like your Git repo and everything. And because of that central place, somebody, I don't know who, had put Bandit so that it ran automatically on the Python projects. And so, you know, as a developer, you don't think about it. You just get Bandit running for you. And nice. you may be able to opt out of it, but if you don't, then you're going to automatically have linting, you know, security linting for your project. That is so cool and so powerful. Just a few weeks ago, I came across this another project. I think it was built by the team at Spotify. It's called Backstage.io. And it's very popular in modern development teams. And it, it kind of does that bootstrapping for you. So you just tell it, I want to you know, spin up a Python project and so on and so forth. And it'll create a repo with all the right templates, with all the right CI files. And that's a fantastic place to add your security controls in it. So you, it's all transparent to the, to the developer. They just natively inherit it as well. Did you have to, in your experience, did you have to do anything different to drive adoption of it? Or were you forcing controls at Spinnaker level or at the CI level? No, that's the great thing about defaults, right? You're not forcing it. You're just, it's a suggestion. And most people leave the defaults alone. So if you were like, hey, I really don't want Bandit or, you know, in the case of like Spinnaker, like, you know, I don't want this setting for my deployment pipeline. You can go and change it but most people don't. And so by default, you get whatever 80%, 90% of new projects are covered with these controls. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm guessing if it doesn't work for whatever reason, and there's, you know, they could make their own choices, they could make their own decisions in terms of removing these controls if there is uh, incompatibility issues or if it doesn't work for whatever reason. For totally, them. yeah. And this is where, you know, as a security organization, the person providing these defaults, we need to make sure there's a killer user experience. Going back to my earliest point, developers are so busy. Like the last thing that we want to do is make their lives harder. So, you know, we can't just be like, throw a million security tools in there and, you know, hope that the developers don't complain too much. That's not going to make our customers happy. So we always have to have that like, you know, product first mindset and make sure that what we're adding is making people's lives easier. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I think a lot of it also has to depend on the company culture as well, right? So for example, if it's a much more regulated company, then obviously they have to take a little bit of a different approach in terms of actually enforcing things because of whatever requirements, government regulations or industry-specific requirements. In that case, it can be done differently. But for the vast majority of things, as you said, you don't want to make a developer's life even more difficult than what it actually is. 
give them security as the easiest path and and drive adoption that way. Yep, absolutely. So one of the things that as I've come to know you, I've noticed that you're personally, this is a separate topic outside of work, but I, I know that you're very much focused on maintaining personal health and, you know, you work out quite frequently as well. With this busy, you know, day-to-day of being at Netflix, being at Databricks, now doing your own thing, it can get busy. And security by its nature is a very stressful role, right? So do you have any thoughts on like, you know, what do you do and how do you motivate yourself to spend time towards that? Yeah, I love this topic. So first of all, I find taking care of myself to be like a net positive outcome, despite the time it takes. So I work out for an hour a day, and I get that time back in being more productive, like having clearer thinking. So for me, it's a it's a net win. But the, the other little trick that I play is I do what's called pay yourself first. So this is like a finance technique where if you want to save money, that, you know, like say you want to save like $2,000 a month, then you take your paycheck and the first thing you do is you send 2K to your savings account and then you don't have it anymore. So I do that same thing for fitness, meaning I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do, whether I feel like it or not, is I exercise for an hour. That way, like it doesn't matter how I'm feeling the rest of the day, I've already exercised. I can't pull that time back. Uh, yeah. So I find it, you know, one, to be a good way to get the day rolling and two, a good way to make sure that I always get it in. I love it. So it's not a decision that you make every morning. The decision has already been made. You're just going to do it. That's right. I just roll right out, of, right out of bed, right into exercising. That's so cool, man. And I believe I ran into you at least once going up the hill by where you live. Such a good hill. <laughs> yeah, it, it is awesome. Although there are coyotes these days in the evenings. Your, your um, dogs seem really happy with, yeah. with you going up the hill too. So before we wrap up, just to summarize this, you know, think about yourself a few years ago. If somebody who's listening to this podcast, they are ambitious leaders, training themselves, educating themselves, learning how to be a better leader, more senior leader within the space of AppSec, what advice do you have for them? Yeah. So first of all, you know, I totally remember being an engineer and knowing that my passion was going to be leading people. And that's such a hard transition. I have a ton of empathy for people that are making the transition because you know, it can take a while. You kind of have this catch-22 situation where until you've led people, people don't know if you're going to be a good leader or not. And, you know, they call it the blast radius and kind of like cold calculating manager speak. But like blast radius is like if you're an engineer or an IC and you don't do well, the blast radius is your project. If you're a people leader and you don't do well, the blast radius is your team. And that gets more and more bigger impact as you go up the ranks. And so there's this kind of reluctance to give new people that haven't led before an option. I would say, you know, one, keep your head up. Two, spend time learning about the kind of like hard parts of management before you get into it. You know, do some of the tasks that managers do, even if you're not in the role for like, so for example, how does the team organize themselves? This is something you'll be responsible for as a manager. How does recruiting work? You know, how do you build the reputation of the team? Like these are all things that individual contributors can do that would also help the manager and demonstrate a skill set and prove to yourself that you actually like this work. So those are all like good ways to get started. And then, you know, the third thing I would say is like in the security industry, we have a talent shortage. So all things being equal, we're in high demand. And, you know, the people at your company should be willing to support you in your career goals. And so, you know, don't expect it to happen overnight. But if you've been asking for an opportunity for, you know, a year or a couple of years and it's not happening, then, you know, don't be afraid to look outside in other places. There are a lot of, Companies where they have like a tech lead manager or other like 
kind of smoother paths into people leadership. So take a look at some of those opportunities to, you know, maybe get something that you can't at your current employer if it's, if they won't support you. That's fantastic advice. I think growing our own team, growing the people that are already within the team, that's such an important thing. Being able to hire is 100% agreed. It's incredibly important. So learning those skills, growing with the rest of your team, uh, helping everybody else within your organization, being a leader, that's really good advice. Thank you so much, Travis, for being on this podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Hopefully uh, you'll have me back soon. All right, we definitely will. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.